Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning, Redemption Hill. Um, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, if you're new or you're just visiting here uh, for the first time, my name is Harrison. Uh, my wife Alex and I have been here at Redemption Hill since about 2017. We've got a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Nora, out in the, the kids' ministry there. Um, and we're currently leading a community uh, group. We meet on Thursday nights, so if you haven't plugged in anywhere, you're looking to get plugged in, come check us out. Um, so I'm not a super regular person up here, uh, but be reassured I'm not a super rando either. TJ's been walking with me since 2017. He's worked on me uh, with... Uh, through these sermons, um, today's sermon and then past year's sermons, and uh, I have been slowly preaching through an Advent series, probably the world's longest Advent series. Started off with peace two years ago, then went to hope, and now this year, um, working on love. Uh, so be sure to come back next year for the exciting conclusion where I wrap things up, but also come back for the 51 weeks beforehand as well. It's going to be good. Uh, so last week, Scott kicked us off on our Advent series. Uh, he started preaching over hope and the hope that we have, not in Jesus' first coming, but in also his second coming. He talks about how that hope gives, keeps us level through the ups and downs of life and re- reminded us about how Christ is the light of the world and even challenged us to continue to share that life with those around us. And I've said it for the past two years and Spoiler alert, it's a three-peat. Our hearts need this season of Advent and remembrance. No matter how dull yet another series over hope, love, joy, and peace might sound to you, the truth is that our overworked, overly distractible, fearful, anxious hearts need a season to readjust to the reality that Christ has come, Christ is King, and that he's coming again. And it's as simple as that. That's Advent in a nutshell. But despite that simplicity, we still, every year, find ourselves needing time of dedicated reminding of where our hope, love, joy, and peace truly comes from. Because the enemy in the world has been relentless in its pursuit to try and tear that truth from our hearts. And I most definitely needed reminding of that this year. I'll be 100% honest and tell you that I was really hesitant to commit to preaching this year. Since the end of October... I had a feeling a text message was coming from TJ uh, to ask if I wanted to preach. And I was already doing the mental anxiety things in my head. I felt overworked, stretched thin, as distracted by the news cycle and, and the wars going on across the globe. And the very new and exciting adventures of the toddler dad life were also weighing on my, my body and my soul. Um, And at the end of a long day, I was just being lulled to sleep by YouTube and and very worthless things. I was anxious about overcommitting and biting off more than I could chew. And because of those things, I had a panic attack almost every time TJ would text me out of the blue. I'd get the text, I'd pull out, and I'd freak out. Like, oh, it's just another dear picture. We're good. Okay, (laughs) moving on. But then the text came, and... I was honest with TJ. I said, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm overworked. I don't know if I have time this year. I don't know if I'll be able to commit well enough. And I could feel the anxiety bubbling up in my heart as I was typing out that response. But TJ was kind. 
He told me that he understands if it's too much this year, but to give it a couple of days and to get back with him. And so I continued to wrestle with it. I talked to Alex about it. I, uh, I looked at my calendar and it all made sense to not preach this year. There's too much going on. But I had an unexpected heart change. For the first time in a long while, I had a free morning. I got to meet with some brothers for coffee to talk and to pray over one another as we were leading some other men through a Bible study. And it was just that simple act of moving towards him, something that I, hadn't, I felt I hadn't been able to do in months. My heart was reignited. I wanted to choose to listen in the midst of the chaos of life for that still, small voice of God. I was reminded of the beauty of a God who keeps his promise of rest. I was reminded of a God um, who stepped down from his rightful place of glory and moved towards his beloved creation in the humble form of a baby, and all for the purpose to walk and suffer alongside of us, only to be then be rejected and die a death that only we reserved, deserved. I was reminded of a good, good father who let, with love in his eyes ran towards the lost, extending his hands to adopt us as sons and daughters of the Most High. He is gracious to bring us back into the fold when we wander off. So family, we need the season of Advent. We need the season of remembrance, remembrance of the first coming and the reminder of his promised second coming. You're here this morning because probably like me, you felt distracted, overworked, fearful, and anxious, but also sensing that you're missing something. So let's turn to the one who can fully love us despite our flaws. And let us be reminded of the promise of his truth that says he has overcome the world and through his work we can have peace. Through his work we now have hope that this world is not all that we were made for. And because of these truths we can be joyous even in the midst of the chaos and uncertainty of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for drawing us here this morning. We could be anywhere else, but you, you brought us here to worship, to listen, um, to, and be reminded of truths. But I pray that these are more than just my words on a page, but your, your truth spoken to your, your chosen people. Amen. All right. So I want to start off in Genesis, the place where it all began and the place where everything was good and where that good lasted all of 10 seconds. All right. So it seems, you know, chapter one, two, three, and it was all broken. But um, we obviously have no idea how long Adam and Eve were on or in the garden before that decision was made, but we can be pretty certain that things did in fact go wrong. We don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out at some point we all became jerks and now we have mosquitoes and death to contend with. And so what happened? So a quick look to Genesis 3 shows us what happened. A lie from the enemy led to a distrust in the goodness of God, which led to an action, the eating of fruit, to choose self over God. And it was this action fueled by the motive of the heart that opened up to humanity the possibility to, to not choose God's peace, hope, love, and joy. Sin entered the game through this choice, and as we know, pretty much ruined everything. 
In the garden, we once drew our very breath from God, and we walked with him, trusted him to do what was good and best for us. But despite that, we chose to obey our own hearts instead of his promises, and we took and ate the fruit that he commanded us not to. But it wasn't just the simple act of eating some fruit that he told us not to eat. Sin resulted from the motivation behind what drove Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. Tony Ranke gives us a great definition of what sin really is. He says sin is not merely wrongdoing. Sin is essentially wrong adoring. Sin is the fastening of our hearts on any good treasure or security in life that replaces the good treasure and security of God. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they weren't only doing what God told them not to do, but they felt in their heart that he wasn't enough for them. So they took matters into their own hands. And this is the root of all sin, a misplaced worship. Instead of worshiping the creator, they chose to worship his creation, seeking it instead of him for all our needs. Instead of finding meaning and satisfaction in him, we've searched the world only to learn that it can't fill us up. And the Bible says that because of Adam and Eve's choice in the garden, the default setting in our heart is to choose anything but God for our meaning and satisfaction. And this is the basic premise of original sin. This default setting in our heart is an act of rebellion against God. And now some of you might think, well, I don't run around murdering and stealing and pillaging, so I'm not sinning. But we read in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus closed that loophole. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, have you ever been angry at someone? That's murder. Have you ever looked at someone lustfully? That's adultery. He shows us that just because our outward actions aren't obvious, the inner thoughts are what make us sinful. He calls us whitewashed tombs, bright and shiny on the outside, but full of dead, rotten stink on the inside. So no one is free of sin. So not only do we all sin both outwardly and inwardly, I think we can all remember times where we have found ourselves on the receiving end of someone else's sin, where we did nothing to deserve it, and yet we ended up hurt. And it's this phenomenon that I want to dive a bit deeper into today. I want to talk about how, whether we know it or not, that the wrong or hurt done to us influences our thoughts and actions towards others, and how these actions and subconsciously learned behaviors can be passed down for generations causing sin to fester like a poorly healing wound. Now, I think in the back of your mind, you're all wondering, isn't this an Advent series on love? Like, where are we going with this? Why are we talking so much about sin? It's a valid question. But I want to start by plumbing the depths of sin and discover its lasting effects to show how great the need it is to rid it from our lives. And when we study just how deep sin goes, it'll magnify the love of God that pulled us out of its trap. It'll show us that even in the midst of our rebellion, he decided to extend his hand of mercy and love us anyway with a love greater than anything we could ever imagine. So in Genesis, so once sin entered the game, we see that its effects last well beyond Adam and Eve. Humans didn't become wise to it and work hard to avoid it. It wasn't weeded out through some evolutionary process or anything like that. Just keep reading through the Old Testament. 
And we see that it's full of murder, dishonesty, stealing, idol worship. And that's just what his chosen people did. It doesn't take long for God to set some ground rules and make his stance on sin very obvious. He knows something that we don't about sin, and he makes some stark warnings about how the sin of a parent can end up causing generations of punishment. In Exodus 20, verse 5, he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And again in Exodus 34, 7, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And there's even two other instances of the Old Testament where God warns about punishing the children due to the sins of their father. I think our immediate knee-jerk reaction is to look at these verses and get kind of angry with God. Why would the sins that my parents or my grandparents committed get me in trouble? That doesn't seem very fair. And I think at a very, very surface level, you'd be right to say that. But this is not the whole story. In order to understand the why behind punishing sin for generations to come, we need to look at what the sins of our fathers did to us and how it affects the way that we view and interact with the world. Again, we look back into Genesis. We don't have to go very far to see all of this play out. Abraham, the father of the Israelites, was apparently married to a total hottie, and he protected himself while traveling in foreign lands. He came up with the idea to lie to the ruler that his wife was actually his sister so that he would not be killed. And the lie worked. She was ended up taken away, but by God's grace, she was brought back. And they never spoke about it ever again until he did it again in a different town. And she was taken. Again, brought back by God's grace. But who knows what kind of trauma she endured because of that lie. Abandoned by her husband in a strange land by the hands of strange men. And that has to leave some sort of impact on her. And then we can follow this sin down to his child Isaac, who did the exact same thing with his wife. And then we see Isaac's son, Jacob, trick his brother Esau into selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. And some may say maybe Esau wasn't the brightest crayon in the toolbox, but he was still deceived by a liar. Jacob even went on to seal the deal by playing dress up and lying right to his father's face about who he was so that he could get his brother's birthright. And here we see sin begets sin. So I think we could preach an entire sermon series on how the Bible wants us to raise our children. But the takeaway message that I want to show is that our actions have real consequences. Even actions that aren't directly related to our kids can still affect their outcome or even the outcome of our great-great-grandchildren. So the curious scientist and medical provider in me went digging and I found some evidence to this phenomenon. It led me to an article from 2018 out of the World Psychiatry Journal. And the article details a field of study called epigenetics, which shows how environmental factors, specifically trauma, can affect DNA and how it is expressed in our body. So think of DNA as a library, and things like stress, diet, and safety are the librarians that control what books are being read. 
And so when you experience repeated or significant trauma, it's like the only books that are open are the books related to the fight, flight, or freeze system. Now these books are actually proteins and hormones that are being upregulated in your body and in turn make us better at releasing stress hormones and anxiety hormones. It makes us more likely to be overreactive or catatonic in stressful situations. It causes emotional volatility, which makes you more likely to cause harm to yourself or the relationships around you. And this DNA and the way that it is expressed can then be passed on to your children, which sets them up to have similar reactions to the way they interact with the world. And they didn't even experience the original sin. Sin has lasting, seemingly invisible impacts that can then make our children and their children more likely to make similar actions and choices. So the simple phrase, hurt people, hurt people, comes to mind. And so how do we fix it? How do we stop the sin leading to trauma, leading to sin cycle? As a medical provider, if I saw you had high blood pressure, I'd put you on some high blood pressure medicines. And so if you came to me with symptoms of result of trauma or neglect, I'd send you for therapy, and I'd encourage you to take some SSRIs to help. We know these treatments can stabilize the physical response some victims have to triggers. I've seen therapy and medications give people the confidence and ability to leave their house for the first time in years. We must take care of the physical body. And the mind needs healing just like your high blood pressure needs fixing. So seeking help with medication and therapy is vitally important. But the question is, is it enough to take care of the sin that started this whole process? Are therapy and SSRIs alone enough to heal the original cause of this malexpressed DNA. So there is a way out, spoiler alert. There is a way to break the cycle, and it starts with the love of God. So let's revisit Exodus 20 again. So we see in verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But in verse 6 we see, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, Exodus 34, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But back it up a verse to verse six. We see the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so it seems that there is a way out of the cycle, and it begins with acknowledging wrong and keeping the commands of God. But these verses contain a bit of a dichotomy. On one hand, we see God as a God of love, but then in the very next or previous verse, he says that he's here to punish sin for generations. I think we need to be reminded that our God is a holy and righteous God. And because of his holy and righteous character, he must enact complete justice against all sin. I think of it like this. When talking about racial injustice, Martin Luther King Jr. said, injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's a very similar thought process how God views sin. Remaining sin found anywhere, even generations later, is a threat to sinlessness everywhere. And because of this, God must be complete in his punishment of sin because he is completely good and holy. 
Any remaining sin is a threat to righteousness and perfectness. And so despite the sins our parents committed against us and the sins their parents committed against them, the remaining effects in us must be dealt with. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 starts, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So God had a plan from the very beginning to deal with this. He had a plan to send a better Adam, one who could, in the midst of temptation, choose God over self. Enter Jesus. Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, entered this world, lived perfectly without sin, was rejected by those he came to love, and crucified because of that rejection. But it was more than death on a cross that he endured, just like how it was more than just a bite of fruit that brought sin into the world. Jesus died, but he also bore the very just wrath of God for all sin committed by all mankind. He bore the punishment of complete separation from God, a punishment we rightfully deserved. But it was his love for us that drew him towards and kept him on that cross. But the work didn't end with his death. The work ended three days later when his buried body began to breathe. His signs of life were the signs of victory over sin and death. And so belief in his life, death, and resurrection is what gives us the ability to conquer sin and its lasting effects. So I kind of want to try and, and tie this message all together. We've, we've spent time talking about sin and generational sin and DNA. Um, and we talked about how God wants to change that and how he has changed that through Jesus. But we still hurt. Sin still has a foothold in some of our lives causing more sin. And so I want to get a little bit more practical here. And to begin, I first want to say, anyone here who has experienced undeserved physical or emotional abuse, it was not your fault. You didn't deserve it. It wasn't because of the way you acted or dressed or didn't mean enough to them. A grievous sin was committed against you and it was disgusting. Jesus weeps over the effects of sin, so much so that he stepped away from his rightful throne room to join us in our world of pain and misery. He came to say, I love you, and the sin that has been plaguing you and your family for generation ends today. The beauty of this work, of his work, is what we call the gospel. God calls us to him just as we are. He calls us to look up from our hurt and the mess we have made to try and hide it. He calls us to turn from what we have been seeking to try and satisfy our broken hearts and to look to him. He calls us to have faith and turn from the pursuit and to run to him. He asks that we run to him and say, I can't fix this hurt, but I have faith that you can. And in that leap of faith, we are granted freedom forever sealed in victory over death, and forever promised eternal rest in him. This is the simple gospel. But the work on this side of heaven is just beginning. What happens next is what we call sanctification. This is a lifelong growing and deepening of our relationship with Christ through the rejection of sin and turning over areas of hurt to him. There's a work to be done to see total freedom Tim Keller says, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, accepts us as we are, 
but by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. And the best example of this uh, is in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, actually. What seems like a random book detailing the military exploits of the Israelites is really the perfect analogy of conquering strongholds in our everyday life. Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. The ark led the charge. It was walked into the river, and as it entered, the river was stopped. The Israelites didn't build a dam to do this or anything. It was all God's doing. And when they had faith that they would walk across the dry land, the river wouldn't come sweep them away. And this is a perfect analogy of how we are saved, not through our own doing, but through faith in the work of Christ. And once the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River, they were in the promised land. They were free. But they didn't stop and just set up shop right there on the West Bank. God led them deeper into enemy territory where the real work began. Yes, while technically in the land promised to them, there were still strongholds that needed conquering in order to experience true freedom. The cities of Jericho and Ai and the giants of Canaan needed removed before Israel could flourish and live in the full freedom that God promised them. And the life of a Christian is similar to this. Jesus calls us just the way we are. He then carries across the Jordan River, forever robing us in his righteousness and his victory. But we don't just stand there at the bank of the river. Freedom from sin through Jesus can be experienced this side of heaven. And sanctification through the Holy Spirit is waiting to begin. And sanctification is a process of digging deep into the depths of our heart and learning what makes us tick. We begin to open up and confess the areas of our heart that we have kept hidden from others. We begin to slowly open the wounds of prior hurts because through his mercy, he can begin to heal them. Family, it is only when we are fully known all the good, the bad, and the ugly and are told, I love you still, do we understand what it is to be fully loved? It is only when every avenue of our heart is opened up to the love of the Holy Spirit do we experience full freedom. So the Holy Spirit's job isn't a sin or an emotional trash compactor. He doesn't look at the overflowing mess coming out of our trash can of a heart and just start stomping it back down like, oh, don't worry about this, uh, we can deal with this later. He came to incinerate that trash. He came to give us strength so that we might expose the sins committed against us and to show us how that sin has crept into our heart to taint everything we do, everything we say, and how we interact with our children and those around us. He came to show us how to trust that our good, good Father is big enough to handle our sin and our hurt and to then give us the courage to confess it and put it in the rear view. There is nothing, no sin, no hurt, too great that the love of Christ cannot conquer. Now this process is bumpy and way easier said than done. Opening up wounds that you have so carefully hidden away from the world is not fun and does not come naturally. Remember our default heart posture? Yeah, that doesn't disappear when we're clothed in righteousness. Again, it's another funny dichotomy, but Paul talks about this in Romans 7 and 8. He talks about how our flesh, 
which is the part that wants nothing to do with God, and our spirit, which is the new part that desires deeper relationship with God, will forever be at war and at odds with one another this side of heaven. So as you confront emotions and sins, you're going to have pushback from your own self and pushback even from those who thought you loved you. Oh, your life wasn't that bad. You're blowing this out of proportion. You kind of deserved what you got. Hurt people hurt people. But Paul reminds us of how much greater the love of Christ is than our struggles against sin. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God will never lead us, leave us despite how difficult of a walk towards freedom it is. And that walk into freedom starts with belief in Jesus. Belief that he is the holy, perfect son of God who came to earth to live the perfect life that we could never live. Who died in our place on a cross meant for us and our sin. We believe he then rose from the dead and in that victory he now stands alive with the keys of death in his hand and that he is coming back to reclaim this world. But while we wait in this in-between place, we walk towards deeper relationship with him. And we do that by loving God because he first loved us. We do that by rejecting sin, celebrating confession, and living in victory. Our job as brothers and sisters in Christ is to worship the king and love him and approach his throne in reverence. And as we learn to recognize him more, we'll start to recognize the sin in our own lives in the lives of those around us. We're to hold each other accountable to removing the things that separate us from God. And when we do sin, when we do discover how we have wronged someone or even ourselves, we're to confess it to those around us. And when someone confesses to you, rejoice with them because that person has just turned from defeat to victory. Now the superhuman ability to do this, because these actions again are not easy and, not, and do not come naturally, is all made possible by the love of God through the work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and through the slow, steady work of the Holy Spirit living in us. Band, you can come back up. Family, this is the reason for the Advent season. We are here today to remember the depth of our sin and how it weaves its way deep into generations of hurt. We see how some of our tendencies to certain sins started generations before us, but we're here today to remember how much bigger God's love is than that sin. He was sent to end the cycle, and we're here this morning to recognize that our hearts need the Holy Spirit to help us shed light on all that we have been too ashamed or fearful or prideful to reveal to him. His love is real, and this love is what brought him here to conquer sin and share that victory with us. 
And what better way than to start than through the taking of communion? Communion is a time where we are reminded of the cost of our salvation and we remember how great a love his love is for us that conquered such a devastating sin that used to lay within us. So 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you do not have to be a member here at Redemption's Hill to partake, but we ask that your faith be in Christ. And if you do not have that faith in his work and want to walk in freedom, I ask that you come find TJ or Elder or one of the elders or myself, and we would love to talk to you about that. So as we close out these last few songs, I ask that you come up front and be reminded of the love that God has for you.